the U.S. unemployment numbers head for recession levels, the Federal Reserve pursues an inflationary monetary policy to protect the U.S. economy, and Congress looks to fund trillions of dollars for infrastructure. I'm Eli Kelson, and this is the Teenager's Guide to Politics. Hey everyone, thanks for just checking out this podcast. Before we begin the show today, I just wanted to quickly describe what the premise of this podcast is about. So one of my goals when I was creating this podcast was to simplify the news down in a basic segment where anyone can be informed and have a firm foundation on how American politics behave. Secondly, I wanted people to be influenced by the facts and not rhetorics. So my job is to inform people of the facts and then you can formulate your personal opinions from there. Finally, I don't want any of my listeners to be misled by politicians' agendas. I want to help develop critical thinking skills in order to tell if a politician is lying. Again, thanks for checking out the podcast. Alrighty, so for today, we will begin with our corona numbers update, as this is the most pressing issue at this country's moment. According to John Hopkins University in the United States, there are about 367,000 confirmed cases and 10,800 confirmed deaths. With these social distancing policies that have been enacted throughout the country, we hope to begin to see this curve flatten and the rate at which people are becoming infected slow down. However, some senators and representatives have begun to question the effectiveness of social distancing. If we look back at the most comparable pandemic to coronavirus and see how two different philosophies worked when it came to containing a virus, Back in 1918, when the Spanish flu was plaguing the entire country, Philadelphia and St. Louis had two different approaches to the disease. According to a 2007 paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, in an effort to boost morale for the war and also to sell bonds, the city of Philadelphia threw a parade that drew more than 200,000 people, despite warnings that the Spanish flu was spreading amongst the soldiers who were about to head off to the Western Front in the European continent and would be in the parade. However, that didn't turn out to be a good idea. Days later, hospitals in the area were filled with patients suffering or dying from the Spanish flu. And this is what healthcare officials say that, that they want to flatten the curve because they don't want to exceed the medical care capacity. Weeks later, more than 4,500 people in Philadelphia died from the Spanish flu due to the strain it had on the medical care capacity and only for the nurses and the doctors and their limited amount of work that they could conduct in a day. However, on the other side of the ledger, things are way different in St. Louis. After detecting its first case of the Spanish flu in the community, St. Louis conducted social distancing policies, such as the ones that we are seeing today, by closing schools, churches, courtrooms, and even libraries. Gatherings of more than 20 people were banned, work shifts were staggered, and ridership on streetcars was limited. The social distancing precautions had a positive effect as excess deaths in St. Louis were 347 per 100,000 people, which is less than half the rate of Philadelphia. The Spanish flu was nothing to mess around with, since ultimately an estimated 20 to 50 million people died after contracting the disease. This is a testament to all the social distancing efforts going on around the country. St. Louis, even more than 100 years ago, is a proof on why it can be so vital in saving lives. Again, the whole premise of the social distancing policies throughout the country is to prevent the healthcare system from being overloaded. But the trade-off of prolonged periods of social distancing comes at an economic cost. The Labor Department reported on Thursday that around 9 million people have filed for unemployment insurance over the past two weeks. However, this number is not seasonally adjusted. By contrast, in a healthy economy, fewer than half a million people would have done so. This suggests that around 8.5 million people are on employed benefits today. Economists suggest 
that the unemployment rate is around 15% as of April 14th due to the recent unemployment numbers, meaning that the America's gross domestic product, which is the total value of goods produced and services provided in a country during one year, has fallen substantially by 23%. This leads to the question being on how the federal government should balance the economic and livelihood of Americans nationwide. Recently, however, the executive and legislative branches have agreed on a $2 trillion stimulus package. This bill includes $350 billion in loans for businesses for job retention purposes as the nation hunkers down during the spread of this contagious coronavirus. This package also has an additional $300 billion in direct payments, or about $3,400 for the typical family of four, earning less than $99,000 per year, and up to $250 billion in expanded unemployment benefits. However, this has drawn some criticism from specific politicians. Four Republican senators, however, expressed concern that unemployment insurance paying out 600 per week, more than many low-paying jobs, would be a disincentive to work. These GOP senators were Tim Scott and Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, Rick Scott of Florida, and Ben Sass of Nebraska. There are mixed messages suggesting the legitimacy of the senators' lines of thought. It's true that as humans, we take the path of least resistance to reach our goal, and getting paid not to contribute to the nation's economy definitely creates a path of unproductivity. However, during the economic hardships of the Great Depression, FDR created the Civilian Conservation Corps through the New Deal, which was a voluntary public work relief program that operated from 1933 to around 1942, ending due to World War II in the United States, for unemployed and unmarried men. This helped relieve the, bur the burden placed on the economy by providing an opportunity to get young men back to work. In the $2 trillion stimulus package, there are no programs such as the Civilian Conservation Corps to relieve the unemployment numbers, meaning that the monetary policy will help stimulate the economy for only a short period of time due to the fact that printing money in an economy where productivity has dropped by nearly a quarter will inevitably lead to an economic phenomenon known as inflation. Therefore, our nation's leaders on both sides of the aisles need to come up with a more structured plan to support the working class by somehow putting them to work. In summary, the notion that the stimulus package will help the economy through this pandemic without any employment options for workers that are being laid off in the millions right now is utterly foolish. History has said that the best way to navigate an economic downturn, such as in the Great Depression, is, the is for the public sector to fund public works through investments in infrastructure by the labor force. With all these questions circulating about how economic and monetary policy work, and I assume that many of them are left unanswered due to the fact that public education doesn't really teach a lot about economics, I wanted to clear some stuff up. In the next segment, we'll address the first question, which leads us to this other institution that was established by the United States to prevent economic fallout throughout the entire nation. It was created by Congress to provide the nation with a safer, more flexible, and more stable monetary and financial system. The Federal Reserve was created on December 23, 1913, when President Woodrow Wilson signed the Federal Reserve Act into law. Today, the Federal Reserve's responsibility fall into four general areas. One, conducting the nation's monetary policy by influencing money and credit conditions in the economy in pursuit of full employment and stable prices. Second, supervising and regulating banks and other important financial institutions to ensure the safety and soundness of the nation's banking and financial systems to protect the credit rights of consumers. Third, maintaining the stability of the financial system and containing systematic risk that may arise in financial markets. Finally, providing certain financial services to the U.S. government, U.S. financial institutions, and foreign official institutions, and playing a major role in operating and overseeing the nation's payment systems. We also have to remember that the Federal Reserve is separate from the government, which makes it 
its primary institution that governs economic development in this country. So when politicians are suggesting that the president is responsible for the economic condition in the United States, this is not completely true. The president is responsible for fiscal economic policy, in which a government adjusts its spending levels and tax rates to monitor and influence a nation's economy. And as stated above, the Federal Reserve is responsible for the monetary policy, which how a central bank or other agency governs the supply of money and interest rates in an economy in order to influence the output and employment and prices. According to CNBC, 85% of the economy is influenced by monetary policy, while consumer spending is around 10%, and the remaining dismal 5% is just the fiscal policy conducted by the president. This just brings into light how delusional it is to praise or condemn any president for the economic situation of the country. By getting those facts out of the way, we can dive deep into seeing how the Federal Reserve is responding to the coronavirus pandemic. According to the Board of Governors, which is the elected leaders that run the Federal Reserve, there are three main goals in maintaining a stable economy, not only for the United States, but in the world. These goals include to support the markets that allow banks to function. The banking system would not work without these short-term funding markets as banks rely on them, in addition to their deposit to make loans. These markets are thus critical to making sure that the financial system does not amplify the enormous shock from the coronavirus. The second is to make sure the market for the U.S. Treasury bonds is working smoothly. U.S. Treasuries provide the collateral that backs a lot of the transactions that are essential to today's financial system, but it is also clear that the U.S. government will need to borrow the funds necessary to limit the coronavirus spread and economic fallout. The Fed wants to make it very easy and very cheap for the U.S. government to do so. The final goal for the Fed wants to make sure that the banks of some of America's biggest foreign trading partners also have access to emergency dollar financing. This basically means lending the European Central Bank or the ECB, the Bank of Japan, the Bank of England, the Bank of Canada, and the Swiss National Bank the dollars they need to lend their own financial institutions. These dollars isn't just used in the United States. It underpins a lot of global trade and finance. These plans laid out by the Federal Reserve show just how interconnected the world is financially due to the process such as trade and globalization. The significance of the situation due to coronavirus cannot be understated and the country must act according or else an already dire circumstance can turn lethal for millions of Americans. Therefore, we must tread carefully and enact policies that have been shown in to work in situations such as these. To summarize, when looking at the status of the economy, while it may be just easier to associate the president with the economy. Taking a deeper look into the monetary policy being pursued by the Federal Reserve, such as bank requirements and interest rates, will give a more truthful story of the economic success or failure that is occurring. Alrighty, we're going to switch gears from the social and economic policies being pursued by the federal government and move more over to what the medical community is saying about the spread of coronavirus. So with these developing conditions in the United States, the social and economic policies from the people and from the experts have generally been pessimistic, but however, there's light at the end of the tunnel when looking at the medical community's records. For countries where coronavirus has had a detrimental effect on daily lives, it appears that the number of infections daily have begun to level off in places such as Italy and Southern Europe. These epidemiological trends are definitely a sign that there is hope to come for the United States. However, they are not the most promising trend. An international survey that was conducted by more than 6,000 doctors found that an anti-malarial drug called hydroxychloroquine has been deemed the most effective treatment for the novel coronavirus, but this doesn't replace the need for a vaccine. It is vital that the federal government contract out the job of developing an immunization to private companies so that time is spared in the process 
which ultimately saves lives. The survey conducted by CERMO, a global health caring polling company, asked 6,227 physicians in 30 countries from around the world to find out what is the most effective against SARS-CoV-2, which is the official name that the World Health Organization has deemed coronavirus. The polls find that 37% of those treating patients suffering from the coronavirus that causes COVID-19 rated hydroxychloroquine as the most effective therapy out of a list of 15 choices. On Monday, the U.S. Federal Food and Drug Administration gave chloroquine and its derivative hydroxychloroquine emergency use authorization, although many physicians were already using the drug as a last resort to help patients that were in the intensive care unit. According to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, hydroxychloroquine, which is sold under the brand name as Plaquine, will be described mainly in the United States for the most severe cases. Outside the U.S., hydroxychloroquine was equally used for diagnosed patients with the mild to severe symptoms, whereas in the United States, it was mostly commonly used for high-risk diagnosed patients, the department found. CERMO released a statement on the poll with other findings, including the three most commonly prescribed treatments among COVID-19. Treaters are 56% analectics, 41% cyromonasin, and 33% hydroxychloroquine. Hydroxychloroquine usage amongst COVID treaters in, is 72% in Spain, 49% in Italy, 41% in Brazil, 39% in Mexico, 28% in France, 23% in the U.S., 17% in Germany, 16% in Canada, 13% in the U.K., and 7% in Japan. Hydroxychloroquine was overly chosen as the most effective therapy amongst COVID-19 treaters for a list of 15 options. 37% of COVID-19 treaters, 75% in Spain, 53% of, of health officials in Italy chose this drug, 44% in China, which is a surprising statistic, 43% in Brazil, 29% in France, and 23% in the U.S. The most common treatment regimen for hydroxychloroquine were 38%, which was 400 milligrams twice daily on day one, and then preceding that, 400 milligrams daily for five days. And then 26% of the time that the doctors prescribed this treatment was 40 milligrams twice daily on day one, and then 200 milligrams twice daily for four days following that. Again, to state the significance of this development, back in 1960, there was a nationwide push for the development of a vaccine against polio. Preliminary trials suggested that antiserum helped polio patients around 36% of the time. Antiserum is a human or non-human blood serum containing monocline and polycline antibiotics that are used to spread passive immunity to many diseases via blood donations. Later, more than 10 years later, the polio vaccine used antiserum to help eradicate polio in the United States. This shows that science builds upon itself and that the fact that drug companies are working at rates that have never been seen before in the United States to develop a vaccine could mean that we are months away from successful human trials being completed. This anti-malarial drug is showing more promise on patients inflicted by the coronavirus. However, it is still vital for the scientific community to develop a vaccine so society can begin to reintegrate itself through processes that the federal government should lay out in normal conditions such as in the past. Okay, moving away from coronavirus implications on American society for today. President Trump recently fired intelligence community inspector General Michael Atkinson, who had reported to the House Committee on the Judiciary and the United States Committee on the Judiciary about the whistleblower complaint pertaining to his dealings with Ukraine, which would ultimately lead to Donald Trump's two articles of impeachment being 
on abuse of power and obstruction of Congress, passing the House along party lines with a vote 229 to 198. He was later acquitted of all charges by the Senate, and President Trump, due to his ego, has asked Atkinson to leave his job in 30 days. President Trump told the House and Senate intelligence communities that he had placed an administrative leave effective immediately, according to a congressional source. In fact, I will read the entire letter right here on the podcast because it is a very brief with only a few hundred words, and so here's the letter. This is to advise that I am exercising my power as president to remove from office the Inspector General of the Intelligence Committee effective 30 days from now. It is extremely important that we promote the economy, efficiency, and the effectiveness of the federal programs and activities. The Inspector General has had a critical role in the achievement of these goals, and as in the case with regards to this position where I, as president, have the power of the appointment, by and with the advice and the consent of the Senate, it is vital that I have the fullest confidence in the appointees serving as Inspector General. That is no longer the case with regards to Inspector this Inspector General. At a later date, I will be submitting to the Senate my nomination of an individual for the position who has my fullest confidence and meets the appropriate qualifications. And that is the end of the letter. And so I'm going to break down what is truthful and what is more along the lines of not being truthful. Okay, we'll start with the fact of the matter, which is that this is a completely constitutional act according to the founding documents because the President of the United States has the complete authority to fire any one of his members he appointed under any circumstance, whether it be for a good reason or a bad reason. It doesn't matter. The President has the judgment. However, this is a terrible move in the eyes of public relations to evict one of the members that brought up a problem occurring in the government process because it makes the president look as if he is trying to cover up any other shady dealings that may hurt his bid for the second term. Needless to say, this action will have a negative effect on his bid, whether or not he had any wrongdoing in any cases. As expected, the Democrats released a statement that condemned the firing that reads, The shameful late-night firing of Inspector General Addison is a brazen act against a patriotic public servant who had honorably performed his duty to protect the Constitution and our national security, as required by law, and by oath, which was delivered by Nancy Pelosi during one of the press conferences. The Republicans came later with their own rebuttal, such as Representative Jim Jordan from Ohio. He has been a vocal Trump advocate during the impeachment probe, mocking Adam Schiff, a representative from California, for being upset about Atkinson's firing, calling him Schiff's key impeachment enabler. Republicans slammed Schiff, who led the House impeachment investigation for refusing to make public a transcript of closed-door interview with Atkinson. Ultimately, what is learned from both parties' responses to the president's action is that they are dead set on appealing to their own bases rather than securing American democracy for its citizens. During Washington's first inaugural speech, Washington addressed the colonist fear of the presidency turning into a tyranny against the common man. He later said in his uh, speech that, the preservation of the sacred fire of liberty and the destiny of the Republican model of government are just considered perhaps as deeply as finally staked on the experiment entrusted in the hands of American people, meaning that the heart of the American government should be represented by the people and not representatives that are going to be abusing their power. What we can learn from this developing situation is the fact that President Trump has an immensely delicate ego of himself and he sees himself as getting revenge on Atkinson for tarnishing his presidency by bringing up the Ukraine ordeals. 
and he often doesn't consider or listen to his advisors about the consequences of his actions that they may have a reverse effect on what he's intending to do by going through with this firing. I can guarantee you that if President Trump stopped this kind of actions, that rather than sitting with about a 47% approval rating, he could be at around 50% and have the suburban women that is key to his second bid to presidency. Moving over to some rather breaking news is that Boris Johnson moved to the intensive care unit, according to the Foreign Ministry Department. And this is expected with the Prime Minister's conditions worsening on Monday. Britain plunged into a harrowing new phase in its struggle against the coronavirus. Mr. Johnson is in a debilitating battle after contracting a virus that he initially viewed with the characteristics as nonchalant. According to the New York Times, Prime Minister Boris Johnson was moved into the intensive care unit on Monday, a worrisome term in his 10-day battle with the coronavirus and the starkest evidence yet of how the virus has threatened the British political establishment and thrown its new government into upheaval. The government said that the decision was a precaution and that he had been in good spirit earlier in the day. But with Mr. Johnson's aides releasing few details about his conditions, the nation kept a tense vigil on Monday night, hoping for the best and experiencing together the frightening mysteries of this new disease. In a sign of how grave the situations have become, Downing Street, the place where Prime Minister Johnson lived, said in a statement on Monday that Mr. Johnson has asked the Foreign Secretary, Dominic Robb, to deputize for him where necessary. The pound felt against the dollar after investors reacted to this news. After noting earlier in the day that the Prime Minister was still getting official papers, Mr. Johnson's aides said he had been moved to the intensive care unit in case he needed a ventilator to help his recovery. Not every patient in critical care is ventilated, medical experts said, but many are, or at least given oxygen, the Prime Minister remains conscious, officials say. For Mr. Johnson, being 55, it was especially cruel reversal for his attitude. Just four months ago, he engineered the greatest Conservative Party victory since Margaret Thatcher in 1987 and delivered his promise to make Britain out of the European Union. And this set in motion an ambitious economic program to transfer in his divided country. Now Mr. Johnson, a political phenomenon whose career has always been in a quicksilver quality, finds himself in a debilitating batter after contracting a virus he initially viewed with characteristic nonchalance. For Britain, which was so recently emerged from three and a half years of paralysis and polarization over Brexit, Mr. Johnson's illness plunged the country back into uncertainty. Britons thought that they left behind. When the Prime Minister announced on March 22nd that he had tested positive for the coronavirus, he insisted he would remain firmly in the charge of the government's response to the virus. Oh, excuse me, I said March 22nd. March 27th, my bad. Sharing the daily crisis meetings by video while self-isolating. It has been an occasionally shaky performance until then. The government initially debated how aggressively it would try to curb the spread of the pathogen. It recently went with the strategy opposing the United States where they wanted to keep the United, the economy open to people to move around and be able to work and go to their jobs and have their daily affairs, letting the consumer take over the economy, which is healthy. However, they began to see the starting in the spike and the increase of infections, and then they moved away from that strategy and they began to shut down the economy and keep people isolated at home. However, it is feared that it's too late for that policy due to the fact that once the virus starts spreading within a community, it's hard for social distancing policies to be effective after the spread was had a significant increase. And it, in recent weeks, Mr. Johnson had seen more command. British has pledged to test 100,000 people a day by the end of this month. Well, that is a 
far cry from what they have been actually, their real numbers have been stating, and the Prime Minister has become an ardent, if not relentlessly cheerful advocate of social distancing, which was very different from what he initially hoped that the British government would pursue. Even after Mr. Johnson had self-isolated himself in his apartment next door to 10 Downing Street, he released a shaky handheld video on Friday in which he warned people not to crowd parks during a sunny spring weekend. But this is hard to blame people. If they've been cooped up indoors all day long and self-isolating, people need, for their mental health, they need to go out and do something. They can't just be locked up in their house for two and a half months. What do you expect? People need to get out and they need to interact with one another. However, at a safety distance with masks on, I would advocate for that because that would help curb the spread. However, they need to be out and interacting with one another, doing physical activity, getting their bodies moving, help being active. This is good for everyone. And if, and we're going to start questioning the more of effect that self-isolating would have on your mental health and your physical health, but just sitting around and doing schoolwork if you're in school or doing work and just if you're not participating in activities it could become very bad mr johnson's aide predicted that he would emerge from self-isolation that day but he said that he was running a temperature and suffering a cough two days later he was admitted to saint thomas's hospital in central london still suffering from those symptoms finally on monday downing street said in a statement over the course of this afternoon the conditions of prime minister have worsened and on the advice of his medical team he has been moved to the intensive care unit at the hospital again saying this was a terrible blow to the conservative movement in britain they had this everything going for them as i was stating before the brexit movement they got that done economic reform they're in the process of doing that and with this if mr johnson dies of this he the conservative party could have a big real self-reflection moment and this more of the left-wing party in london could have a moment to rise and fill in that void Mr. Johnson's hospitalization has coincided with a call by the Queen Elizabeth, which is actually very rare for her to do a public address, for Britons to expect the face of the pandemic with the solace and the self-discipline they showed during World War II. Her rare televised address reassured many, but barely an hour later, they were jolted by the news that Mr. Johnson's deteriorating condition. Uh, however, on Monday, the government tried to put a good face on the situation. Mr. Rabb told a news conference that Mr. Johnson was in good spirit after a comfortable night in the hospital a short distance from Downton street definitely definitely terrible news for people in britain and i we send their uh, my condolences to them and they hope they will be able to recover from this terrible news because if one of the public officials announced as prominent as the prime minister which is probably about equivalent of like this house house representative leader with speaker pelosi for that matter or vice president pence or even president trump this is about the same equivalence to the britons as this would be us for americans so this is very devastating news for people in britain i hope they recover from it soon okay so for wrapping up this podcast today we're going to finish with one thing that i liked so i found this political cartoon on politico that was extremely funny when i first saw it and it just shows you how the world has come to defend against oneself and not against a biological disease. And so it shows a general and two of his advisors at the top of this massive retaining wall with ICBMs and cannons attached all over this wall. And the general is looking attentively through his binoculars at a tiny coronavirus protein that is floating over to the wall. It just looks like a little snowflake floating in the air. And it just shows how the world is prepared to fight one another with these deadly, awful, terrible weapons, yet they are not ready to fight against a microscopic enemy. And 
just shows the irony behind the situation. Before I leave you guys here today, I just wanted to tell you my plan for uploading the episodes. And right now I have kind of a busy schedule with school and juggling extracurricular activities. And I'm planning on releasing one podcast on Wednesday every single week. And when we'll get my schedule cleared up more, I can start releasing more and more content each week. Hopefully maybe like three episodes a week. And just wanted to let you guys know. And this is Eli Kelson signing off from the Teenage Guide to Politics. See ya.